So uh, we're going to pick up in our series on 1 John again this week, and, um, and it's such a fitting um, passage of Scripture. I, you, know, you know what this is? Uh, this is an interesting document. You probably have one of these, I think, and I have one, but uh, it's my birth certificate. And, uh, you know, as I, as I was thinking about it, you know, this week um, is, is my birthday and Maggie's birthday and my nephew's birthday all on the same day on Wednesday. And... Um, and I was just thinking back to, to my birth and the document, the documentation of my birth. And, you know, it's, it's just real interesting because this is a document you have to keep, right? This is a document you need if you need a driver's license or, you know, or you move or anything like that. You've got to keep this thing. And, and it tells the stories, it tells the story, kind of the narrative of the situation of your birth, who your parents are, you know, where they lived. I mean, I, I look at this, see my parents' ages, see their social security numbers. Can you put that up on there? I'm just kidding. Um, and I see the little apartment that they lived in and they brought me home into, and it tells the truth about my humanity. You, you've got a story about your humanity. It's documented on your, your birth certificate. And what we're talking about today is the, the truth about our souls as Christians. God's Word is our soul's birth certificate. It shows exactly where we came from, who our Father is, and what our purpose in this life is about. Specifically, this passage in 1 John, uh, along with Romans chapter 8 and Galatians chapter 4, uh, tells us this story of our identity as God's children. But here's the thing. Just kind of like I came back to the details of my birth, we've got to keep coming back to the details of our spiritual birth to understand how to live in this world as God's kids. It's, it's so difficult to live out our identity as God's children because we can't fathom the grace that makes us children of God. And the reality is this, is whose we are in this world, who we belong to in this world, determines everything about how we live as his kids. Like our father determines everything about the trajectory of our lives. Now more than ever, I'm seeing this, this really beautiful reality. Um, it's not perfect, it's messy, but I'm seeing this desire to be holistically united in our hearts and in our service as God's church. So it, it's interesting because the church actually believes more now than ever in my life that I've been aware of what John's been teaching us, that our beliefs of Jesus are inextricably linked to our behavior as the church. That, that, that there is a desire for a more unified heart and a more unified activity of his church. But if we forget whose we are, we can inadvertently be, be, be building the wrong kingdom. Our, our spiritual birth certificate our, in the, that we find in the scriptures resets us as we seek to live on his mission. George Mueller was a man who wanted to do great things for Jesus, like many of you that I know. He wanted to change the world. And you think, oh, that's kind of uh, optimistic naivety. He wanted to change the world because he was a Christian. He thought God had called him to do that. So George Mueller was a native German who radically changed. Uh, he, he was called out of a life of sin and called to be a pastor of a church in Bristol, England. But not only to preach, not only preach the gospel in word, but to impact the community indeed. Um, and, and King Jesus called him to seek with his whole life to serve the most vulnerable people in his community. There was, a, there was a crisis of orphans in the community. And so this shift happened in his life when, where he had to learn how to abide in Jesus alone and live out his identity as a son of God 
which would mean that he would deeply enter into the warfare of prayer as a lifestyle. And this, this went to everything into how he would care for the orphans, how he, would, how he would give provision to them, how he would understand how people misunderstood him in the community, all of those things. And, and the, the key that happened in his identity is notated uh, by him. He said this once. He said, here's what I had to change. I had to die to what George Mueller thought about George Mueller. You can't really live for God's glory or have fellowship with God if you are thinking about what you think of yourself. It reminds me of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 or 4, I think, where he says, I don't even judge myself. I'm not worthy to judge myself because I'm hidden in Christ. I can forget about myself. That's what Mueller says. But he goes on to say this. Second, he added, the day had to come when I had to die to what other people thought of me. For the ministry of George's life and my life and your life to be great and eternal, we must stop doing it for ourselves and others, church. Amen? We've got to stop doing that. There's an audience of one that we are called to serve, and it is King Jesus alone. King Jesus has made God our Father, and we are called to live as his children in this earth. And so the the question for us is, is this this morning. How would we live if we weren't afraid of what other people thought of us? How would we live? How would we live in that type of freedom as God's children? And this is really kind of the big idea of where we're, we're going this morning, that we have a Father who loves us, and that changes absolutely everything for us. All right, so let's dig in together. We're going to be in 1 John. We're going to start in chapter 2, verse 28, and, and work our way through uh, about half of chapter 3. I'm going to read uh, the first three verses for us. So if you've got a Bible, flip there yourself. John, who's elderly at this age, I want to remind you, he's between 80 and 100 years old. He's, he's Jesus' best friend. He's, a, he's a kind of a grandpa himself. He's kind of that age. Looks down at the church, thinks about the church, and he, he speaks in a soft, tender voice to the church, and he says this. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Okay, so... So here's what John is saying here. He, he, he wants us to think about what it's like to be a child of God and what, it, what it's like to have a father. And, and um, the, the kind of the big picture of this is that our identity gives us confidence to live righteously in this world. He, he, he is saying that there is something in us when our identity is off that we don't have confidence to live righteously before God. And his heart is to give you the confidence that you need to live righteously in God's kingdom. That there is an innate fear to doing the things that God has called us to do, to live the ways that God has called us to live, that the enemy wants to keep us in. He wants to keep us in shame. Uh, and so, you know, to think about this, you know, if you're, if you're a parent, um, have you ever caught your kid doing something? Of course you have, right? Sometimes you even set them up because you're a little twisted too, and you, and you catch them doing the thing you set them up doing. Or everyone can relate to this. Has your parent ever caught you doing something you weren't supposed to do before? 
You know, they, they, they walk in on you, uh, you know, completely disobeying their word, completely disobeying what they said to you. When, when, I was, when I was 12, I had a dirt bike, and it was a fun dirt bike. It was a little Honda 100cc dirt bike. It was just so cool. It was fun. And so I had this friend, Stephen. Stephen lived um, about two or three miles from me, and I would, I would take this shortcut to get to his house where I would cut through my friend's like woods. He had all these dirt bike paths and stuff back there, and I would cut through there. But I'd always wondered in the back of my head, the back of my mind, what it'd be like to be on the open road as a 12-year-old. And so uh, and my, parents, my parents said, you cannot ride this thing on the street. You're 12. You know, it's a 55-mile-an-hour speed zone. You can't ride this thing on the street. And I I went uh, against uh, their word one day, uh, and it was glorious, okay? I mean, I got out behind that bike, I mean, just like a hog, just riding it down Highway 151, you know, just keeping up with all the cars. I could do about 50 or 60 miles an hour. And then as I went to go turn on Stevens Road, I looked out of the corner of my eye, and I saw the county sheriff pulling a U-turn behind me, out of the corner of my eye, and flipping his blue lights on. At that moment... Those moments right there tell you about your sin nature, okay? They tell you about your propensity to what you are capable of as a human being. So I had two options. The two options were this. One is I could assume that those blue lights were for me, and I'd pull over at the, the service station that was right there and just wait for him to come and you know, do whatever he was going to do. Or you can drop it down a gear and just go for it. And so I did the latter. And, uh, and, I, and I drove as fast as I could to Stephen's house, and I, I uh, recklessly pulled into his yard and, and took my dirt bike around the back of his house and, and began to hide. And then the police officer is driving by slowly looking for the 12-year-old on the or- bright orange motorcycle that he cannot find. And at that moment, I thought, dodge the bullet there. Yeah, no, that's great. I'm not going to get caught. What I didn't account for is the fact that my neighbor also passed me on the road. And so I get home later that night. I go through the woods the way I'm supposed to go. And I get home later that night and and my parents, I can't remember which one of them it was, asked me, hey, how was your time over at Stevens? And I was like, good? You know, you know, it's that moment where you're like, do they know or they don't know? It's that moment you're like, how confident can I be here? Should I just, should I just act like there's no possibility that anything went wrong? And I, and I lacked the confidence in that moment. And they sought it right out. And they already knew. They already had the knowledge. Have you ever been in a moment like that before? Well, what John is saying to us here is that he doesn't want us to be like that when Jesus returns. When when Jesus returns, and what Jesus is going to do when he returns is he's going to judge the world. He's going to come back, he's going to judge the world. Those that have bowed their knee to King Jesus and have lived for him are going to be given new bodies and their souls, or they're going to be with him in the new heavens and the new earth forever. And then those who have not bowed their knee to Jesus are going to be judged. They're going to be under God's wrath for the rest of their lives, for all of eternity. And what Jesus wants to give you is confidence. Not confidence just in the future, but confidence today. So my question to you is, what are you going to do when God shows up, when he walks in on us all at the end of time? What are you going to do? How will you respond to the King of kings and the Lord of lords who will not come the way he did the first time. It will not be a silent night in a barn in Bethlehem when he comes back. No, everyone in the world will know when Jesus comes back. And he'll come back with great authority and great power to judge the world. 
And, and, and we, can be, we can be sure and have confidence in how we respond to Jesus' love here and now today. But Revelation gives this picture that's a, it's a terrifying picture. It says this, Revelation 6.16, that when Jesus returns, some will try to hide themselves and wish that mountains and rocks would fall on them because of their shame. Now, now here's, here's the deal. That doesn't have to be us. That Jesus wants to give us confidence as God's children to live righteously in this world. And, and in order to do that, the opinion of God, of his children, has to be first and foremost on our priority list. More so than the things that typically paralyze us in living righteously in this world, which are our opinion of ourself or opinion of others. So to live in that confidence, we've got to shake off what we think of ourselves and what others think of us and only live before the face of God. Quorum Dio, just to live only before the face of God. So how do we do that? John says there's only one answer. You've got to abide. It's a word that we use often because the Bible uses it often. But what's it mean? To abide means to continually belong to the Lord. To continue to belong to the world. So to not only... Not only see Jesus as the door to eternal life, I think a lot of people live that way. Jesus is the door to eternal life. He said he's the door. He's the gate. We enter in by him. But John 14, 6 says that Jesus is also the way to eternal life. So not only is his life the door to eternal life that appeases the wrath of God and gives us forgiveness, but his life is also the way that we are called to live as his children. So Jesus isn't just a magical entry point, but his life and his ways are also our ways to eternal life. A disciple that abides in Jesus remains in Jesus. And not only that, he starts looking like Jesus. She starts looking like Jesus. You know why? Because we've been born of God. You see, as children of God, God has given us something even better than adoption. A lot of times we talk about this doctrine of adoption, that we are called sons of God. He's adopted us into his family. But the Bible says he's actually given us something better than adoption. He's given us new birth in his family. In, in, in other words, no one in the kingdom of God, no, no, uh, no one in the kingdom of God has always been a Christian. You know, sometimes that's our story. I grew up in the church, I've always been a Christian. Well, according to the scripture standards of this, no one's always been a Christian. And, and because of that, we, we have this moment, some of us are aware of it, some of us are not, where we become children of God because the Holy Spirit awakens our hearts and God gives us new regenerate hearts that desire his ways. We can't explain it. We know that just God just does it. He replaces the heart of flesh and the heart of stone with, with a heart that's for King Jesus. And um, for some people, the, the transition's more abrupt than others. For others, they can, they can remember how it happened, when it happened. And, and, and then what happens as God gives us this new spiritual DNA is that our ways are really about his ways. And then you have confidence to walk and abide in Jesus because you realize that he's changed you. The reason that I believe in God's grace and that I'm his son is because he's changed me. I would not, my life would not look the way that it does today if God had not changed me, changed my heart, given me a new heart. The way to think about this that's helpful for me is this. God doesn't have any grandkids. Sometimes when I read these scriptures, and these are some of the most dear scriptures to me, Romans 8, Galatians 4, 1 John 3, 
and two, uh, here, the fact that God's called us his children, they're so dear to me because I felt so orphaned for so long. Not, not just because of my broken family life. You guys are aware of that, that God is mending and putting back together now. But just my own wandering in this world, it just felt like an orphan, so out of place in so many ways in my life. Never fitting in, always trying to live for other people. But when God saves you and you realize that he doesn't have any grandkids, he only has children, he's pushing out that anti-Christian activity. That's the family name for us, is that we're, we're Christian, we belong to Jesus, we're little Christs. And he's put this spirit in our hearts that Galatians 4 says is like this, it cries out, Abba, Father. In other words, the spirit that God has put inside of us is constantly convincing us that we belong to God because we need that. Because the enemy is constantly trying to convince us that we do not belong to God, and he's reminding us of that through our sin. He's reminding us of that through our shame. He's reminding us of that through the the behaviors that our life produces that we wish it wouldn't. And the Spirit is constantly trying to convince us, because you need constant convincing, that your real spiritual DNA is that you are a child of God. The paternity test came back, and it's true. That while we were still sinning, it didn't stop God from sending Jesus into our world to win us back to the Father. Second thing that we see is this, is that not only are we in God's, God's kids and that changes everything, but, but also there, we have family traits. God's kids resemble God. I mean, you've, you've heard uh, someone say that knows your parents, oh, you look. You know, just like your daddy, or just like your mommy. You've heard somebody say that before in your life, or somebody said that to you if you have kids. Um, and, and it's true, right? If we, have, if we have the same DNA, we resemble each other. Well, the same is true spiritually with God. So let's, let's continue to read what John says here. 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 through 7, he says, Beloved, again, that tender tone of love, we are God's children now. And what we will be, you know, it's not appeared, but we know that when he appears, when Jesus appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one abides in him, keeps on sinning. No one keeps on sinning, has either seen him or known him. It's a scary verse, isn't it? Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, and, and as he is righteous. So God tells us we're his because he loves us, and he made us, and he tells us how to live, Right? I know that not, not all people are parents in here, but I just want to say something about parenting real quick that I think we can learn from the Apostle John here. Um, have you ever noticed that in the Scriptures that, that God is always showing us our identity before he talks about our activity and behavior? Have you noticed that? In the Greek, it's called, he's showing us the indicative, what God has done, before he's showing us the imperative, what we're called to do, how we're called to respond. A lot of times, I think we approach God uh, with the imperative kind of before the indicative. And we approach parenting the same way. We say, you know, one of my kids says, you know, why do I have to do that? And I say, because I'm your daddy. You know, and I said so. 
And it's like, well, that never really works that well. They might obey in the moment, but in their heart, they're far from me. Here's what I'm learning about parenting, is that discipline and instruction without relationship leads to rebellion. That, that, that you give rules without relationship, it leads to rebellion. But, but the, the thing that changes in my kids and the thing that changes in my walk with God as his kid is that when I understand that his discipline and his instruction and his rules for me, they come through a relationship with me because he loves me. And, and I, I receive that when I understand that I'm God's son. That I'm God's son, not that I'm going to embarrass him with my life. A lot of times we get so selfish as parents, don't we? And our kids embarrass us. And it's God's way of just showing us that we need to live by grace through faith, right? But, but when we give discipline or instruction to our children as sons and daughters of God, we do so through relationship. And when you do so through relationship, by God's grace, our children will see that it's out of love that we care for them. But, but that relationship is built over a period of time. It doesn't just start when the kids start going off the rails when they're teenagers, right? The relationship can't start then. It has to start when they're much younger. And that's just what, exactly what God does with us. If we hear, you know, we, we, you know, if we hear the Ten Commandments without hearing Jesus fulfilled the law, our lives are just a disaster, because we keep seeing how many times we fall short. If our kids here, I've just got to please mom and dad and get good grades and, and stay out of trouble with the law, um, then they'll be happy with me. We're not raising our children up in the fear of the Lord through a relationship with us and God. So that's, that's the call for us, that, that I no longer just have to yell to see change or manipulate to see change, because that's not how God treats me. God doesn't just look down his nose and just give me that stern look of disappointment to, to whip me into shape. No, he comes alongside and loves as a father loves a son. Beloved, we are God's children. God is our father. You know, before cell phones came around, you know, and I, I haven't been a father in that era, but I can imagine that I would have like a Rolodex of pictures in my wallet of my kids, right? And, and, I, and just like my dad did. And, uh, you know, just you couldn't wait to show the latest fourth grade picture with the missing teeth and all that kind of stuff. And so this is how God thinks about you, church. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God loves you so much that he's not disappointed in you? that you are his deeply and dearly beloved child? Do, do you actually believe that at the heart level? How would you live if you believe that? What would your life look like? He, John goes on to say this, and I think it relates. He says, what we will be has not appeared, but when he appears, we shall be like him. So what's this mean? It means that God sees us as we are, right? He sees us as fatally flawed but eternally redeemed sinners as his children, right? He sees Jesus in us, but he knows he had to send Jesus for us, right? That was his plan. That's how, he, how much he loved the world. And then we also see him. So we see God sees us as we are. We see ourselves as we are, and we see God as he is. And what we see is a huge gap. And, and that gap gives us discomfort. That gap 
the enemy's ways to, to kind of for us to receive the, the knowledge of that gap between us and him, that his ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, is, is to sink us in shame. He, he wants us to live in shame when we see that gap. But John says this, when Jesus appears, when he comes back, and he's going to come back and no one knows the day, no one knows the hour except the Father. A lot of people think they do. They're all liars, okay? That's what Jesus said. Um, when he comes back, we are going to be like him. So a lot of times we think about our lives and we think, man, I don't resemble God the way that I want to. I don't look as much like Jesus as I'd hope to at this point in my life. God says we shouldn't lose heart in that because when we see him, when we see him face to face, we will be like him in an instant. So we, we shouldn't let the enemy convince us that we're not his kids because we know the gap exists. Paul wrote about it, this incremental change of sanctification that we see in 2 Corinthians 3, 16 through 18. He says this, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the veil is, is, is really this idea that we've got to get to God on our own, right? That, that, we, that the law is the way that we get to God. So when one turns to the Lord, when one repents and, and becomes a child of God, the veil is removed. And he says this, now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now what is the spirit? It's the spirit that God puts in us that cries out, Abba, Father, we're your children, right? And he says, and we all with unveiled faces, we don't have to live under the law anymore, Beholding the glory of the Lord, we're seeing him as he is, are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So the gap that exists between us and our older brother Jesus is a gap that God is changing. He's closing the gap as we follow him, as we live as his children. God the Father sees you completed. You can't imagine what it would, like, would be like to not struggle with sin, to not struggle with temptation, to not be caught up in habitual sins, besetting sins as the scriptures talk about. We can't imagine that, but that's all God can see of us because of the work of Jesus. We can't imagine what it's like to feel complete. We can't imagine what it's like to not feel like we're in bondage. Our Father sees the end, and church, he knows how to get us there. It's through his spirit. So as we turn to Jesus in desperation, the veil, our, our ability to save ourselves is lifted. And we see that it's, an, that it's an endless cycle that will never be complete. And we get desperate for change, and that's where the spirit works. The spirit seeks out the lowest places of our hearts, the desperate parts of us, and empowers us. And how does he empower us? He doesn't say, you know, just pull yourself up by the bootstraps. He says, you're a son of God. Think with the end in mind. You've already won the battle. The victory is yours. So why are you still performing? That, that's what he's showing us as children of God. What we're longing for is already in our possession. It's not finished, but it's in possession and we're in route. Another thing he mentions here is this, that Jesus appeared to take away sins. So Jesus didn't just appear to forgive sin, but to take Away sins. Now, he's, he's, he's talking about this idea of lawlessness. So what is lawlessness? Lawlessness is like living like there is no authority outside of yourself. So it's those moments, moments that you can think about where you said, I don't care what they say, I'm going to do whatever I want to. You know, those moments, we've all had them, right? We're living lawlessly in those moments. 
And, and what, what, what he's saying about Jesus is that Jesus, um, Jesus has come to take away sins. Verse 5. And in him there is no sin. This idea of taking away sins is, is so helpful for me because a lot of times as fallen image bearers of God, we tend to relate, we tend to think that we relate to God through our sin. And so our relationship with God always looks like this. Father, I've sinned again. Please forgive me. You know, I didn't know what I was doing. Please forgive me. And so that's the first thing that we think about. We don't think about the Lord's Prayer where he says, our Father in heaven. Identify the relationship with your Father in heaven before you ask for the forgiveness of sins because your primary identity is one of a child of God, not as an unrighteous sinner. But how many times do we get that wrong? Well, John reminds us here, he says, he says that you need to think about your relationship differently, that Jesus has taken away your sin. He has backed up the truck to your sin. You've dumped it in through confession, and he has drove it away to the cross. That's what he's done. The, the idea of this uh, is really beautifully portrayed in the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 16. It's this high and holy day that uh, the God's people would celebrate called the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, if you're interested in the Hebrew. And, uh, and really what would happen here is this, is this ceremonial sacrifice, that there would be uh, two goats that would, be, that would be chosen. One of the goats um, would, would be sacrificed, and, 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 and you know, they would pray for the forgiveness and their iniquities of their sin, and, and that the shedding of blood would be a symbolic pointing to Jesus who would once and for all forgive us of our sin. But then there was this other goat. So, so the other goat wouldn't die, but instead that goat the, the priest Aaron at the time would pray, would lay his hands, and he would intercede for the people, and he would confess the sins of the people and place it on the head of the goat. And then they would, after they had prayed, they would let the goat go free to Azazel, which is the, believed to be the, like the, the, the place of demonic activity, right? To, to, be, to, to take the sin away. How much of our lives do we think about Jesus forgiving our sins, being our substitute, but not taking them away? But instead, we, we go on relating to sin as normal, forgetting that as a child of God, he's backed the truck up, we've confessed it, and Jesus has drove it, driven it away to the cross. And so every time it shows back up, we entertain it, and we think, oh, there's my old friend again. Instead of seeing it as something that Jesus has taken away from us, we live like an orphan or a great-grandchild, but the call of God is, is to live like a child. He's taken away anything that's deadly and harmful to our identity. That's what he's done. And the same spirit that descended upon Jesus at his baptism in Matthew chapter 3 has descended upon us. Right? So after Jesus is inaugurated into ministry in Matthew chapter 3, uh, he's baptized by his cousin John. And, and the, the, the call is this uh, to him. He says, God, a booming voice comes down from heaven. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So that spirit is the spirit that God sent to live inside of your heart. And it, it, he sent it because Jesus accomplished the work for it to be true in you. And so here's how God thinks about you. This is my son. This is my daughter. And I couldn't be more pleased. I couldn't be more happy to pull out the Rolodex of photos and show you how proud I am of them. How proud I am of them. That's how God thinks about us. Now, there's, 
There's really another thing that he goes on to talk about here is this real scary verse. I'll read it for us real quick. It's 1 John 3, 6 through 7. It's, it's, the, it's the verse that makes us think that uh, if we have sin in our life, uh, that we're not saved. It's also the verse that some people think that, um, that, that God has called us to a perfectionistic life that, uh, or complete sanctification, as some traditions call it. Uh, let me read it for you. It says this, no one who abides in him, in Jesus, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Now, that's a scary verse for us because I can think about sin in my life this morning, right? Does that mean I'm not a son of God? If you just read that verse, you could get there, right? But, but here's, here's what John draws for us. I want to show you kind of the whole scope of what he says here. Is there's two ditches to becoming righteous. There's always two ditches, right? And we're trying to keep it in between the ditches. That's what the, the follower of Christ is trying to do. We're trying to stay on the way. So what John is talking about is different propensities toward righteousness. He's addressing us. He's, he's showing us that we're all, we have a different pursuit of righteousness. We have different hang-ups in living righteousness. Jesus is like righteous. And so the first one is... Uh, the, the, um, the posture of unrighteousness, as I'm going to call it. This is someone who lives maybe a rather loose and permissive lifestyle. So you think maybe often about forgiveness, but not as often about obedience. So forgiveness to you might be a blank check. But, but you tend not to experience the transforming nature of grace. You struggle with unrighteousness. I can never be righteous. I'll never change. If this is you, John is saying that you need to be nudged by these verses in 1 John 3. That, that a life that plays its way out this way doesn't show the family traits that you belong to God. Now, it, it's a nudge for us. It's a command to us to pursue righteousness. That, in fact, we have the power to live as God lived, and he's transforming us to one degree uh, to another. You're not called to be perfect, but to move toward confession and repentance. And that's what it looks like to kind of get out of that ditch, right? Some of you are hung up here right now. The quarantine has just made it worse, right? The isolation has just made it worse. Now, the other ditch is this. It's self-righteousness. You know, these are, these are those of you who are more perfectionistic of others. You've got you know, charts and, and plans and, and calendars for days. We walk into your house and it's like, wow, does anybody even live here? I mean, look at this place. It's amazing, right? You, you've got everything in order. And you might be tempted to think that you can lose your salvation when you see your sin. You read 1 John 3 and you say, I'm not a Christian. There, there's no way that God loves me. I have sin in my life. And you struggle, you're burdened, you don't have any confidence in your salvation because all you can see is your sin. And your primary relationship to God is through your sin, not through grace. And John says this in 1 John chapter 1, because your tendency is to be unkind to yourself, not forgiving of yourself. To be unrealistic with your sanctification. John says this, 1 John 1, 8 and 10, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves in the truth is not in us. But if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So what he says to you is you need to show yourself more grace. Just because you're kind to yourself and you let Jesus love you doesn't mean you're licentious and permissive with sin. It means that you're realistic about your need of God's grace. Now these are the two ditches of becoming righteous. I'm willing to bet that you 
you kind of are aligned more toward one or the other. And what God has called us to is Christ's righteousness, not our own pursuits of righteousness. And here's what Jesus has done to keep us between the ditches. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, he's came to take sin out of the equation so that we can experience the righteousness of God with how we live. We relate to him primarily through grace, not through sin. There's a difference there. And, and lastly, I just want to say this about the hope that we have. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Don't ever forget this verse, okay? Let me read the, the context of the two verses that surround it too. He says this, 1 John 3, 8, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So he's talking about two different dads here, right? Father of the devil, child of God. What he's showing us, and I think this is so key. If we, if we go on to Matthew chapter 4, after Jesus was baptized, what is the first thing that he did? The first thing that he did, and I'm going to use my term again, is he went into the wilderness to have a knife fight with the devil, right? A, a spiritual knife fight with the word of God, right? With the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights. Why did he do that? Because the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He came to show us that we have power over the enemy that seeks to keep us in shame and that seeks to destroy our joy. The devil is a fraud. He's a fake and illegitimate dad, okay? And what he wants to do is to try to claim you as his child. He, want, he wants to collect off of your shame is what he wants to do. Because misery loves company. And that's exactly where he desires to take us. He sells us a bill of goods that the world suggests that the biggest problem in our life is anything other than sin against the holy God. The devil would love to keep us all active. And I'm just, just real talk right here. He would love to keep us active in the causes of mercy and justice without the person of mercy and justice. That's what he would love to do. But the only hope that we have in our pursuit of righteousness, of mercy, and of justice, and of activism, is if he has disarmed the devil, okay? That's the only hope that we have. It can be just another pursuit for the enemy to manipulate us if we don't understand that the most unjust thing that ever happened in the history of the world was that the Son of God was murdered for sinners. If we don't see that as our primary problem, we'll never do anything that lasts in this world. We'll never change the world just by putting lipstick on it through our activism. But it's got to be motivated by the blood of Christ for sinners that makes us sons of God. Living as God's children was the original design. That was the original design. You look at the book of Genesis and you see how much God loved us and loved to walk with us in the cool of the day and have relationship 
with us. And we forget that that was his intent all along. And that's the restoration that Christ has brought to us, to make us fully and finally sons of God, even though we see the gap that exists. 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. What kind? Look at the quality of the love he's saying. See what kind. It's not surface level love. It's a deep, holistic, redeeming love. See what kind of love. Gaze at that. The Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. We believe it. And the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So church, when you feel like the world doesn't know you, I felt so misunderstood in the last two weeks, okay? I felt so trapped in the last two weeks as a son of God. When the world does not understand you, you need to understand that this is because the world does not know him. So church, may we continue to walk in him and abide in him and to walk righteously as he is righteous in this world by grace through faith because you're God's legitimate son, God's legitimate daughter, and that changes everything. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you that, um, that you have made us so desperately needy for your, your salvation and your faith that you give to us as a gift, Lord. Lord, when we look inside and we lose hope, uh, Father, would you, the spirit of your son, Jesus, that cries out for our sake, for our joy, for our salvation, may he renew our strength, Lord. When we feel like hope is fading, Lord, we, may we remember that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason the Son of God appeared was to take away sins. That's why he appeared, so that we could walk righteously with you forever. Lord, we know that you have not taken us out of this world, but you've sent us as light into this world, God. Show us what that looks like now. And God, keep us from judging others whose walk in righteousness looks different than ours. Unite our divided hearts in this time through the power of your Son that cries out, Abba, Father, in our hearts. Lord, save us, redeem us, renew our strength. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.